You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Tanner Huss, and I'm the community groups pastor here at Crossroads. And it is such a joy and privilege to be able to worship with you and to be able to open God's word with you this morning. If you're new or newer to Crossroads, I just wanna say welcome. We're so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us. I'd love to meet you at the Welcome Center after the service, just outside the double doors at the back of the worship center. Uh, Get to know you a little bit and hear a little of your story and share a little bit about what's going on in the life of Crossroads. A second chance to be able to meet me and some other ministry leaders here at Crossroads, including Pastor Keith and his wife, Lori, is a welcome lunch coming up November 20th. And that takes place after the second service in the fireside room. And this is again, for people who are new or newer, please go ahead and register on our website for that lunch. We would love to get to know you and to share a little bit about the heart of of what we're doing here at Crossroads and where we see God leading us as a church family into the future. Now, something else coming up that I'm really excited about is that Pastor Keith and his wife, Lori, are on their way back, actually, from serving overseas over the last week. And right now, as we speak, they're on their way back. And they're coming back just in time because next Sunday is International Day of Prayer. And this is a day when we lift up the persecuted believers around our world in prayer. Pastor Keith is going to be bringing a special sermon for us on the persecuted church. And if you know anything about Pastor Keith, you know this is his heartbeat. This is a deep love for him, and it's been a contagious love. It's spread throughout our church family. So we love the persecuted church, and we want to stand in the gap for them in prayer. And so next Sunday is a service you won't want to miss. And the following Tuesday, during the evening prayer service, that time will actually also be dedicated to praying for the persecuted church. So that would be another great opportunity to join together as a church family and pray for those brothers and sisters among nations where believers are persecuted. Now, on the topic of praying for other nations, church family, let's remember today and this week to be in prayer for the nation of South Korea, for the devastating loss that they've just experienced through this tragic accident that occurred this weekend. Let's be praying also for our brothers and sisters here at Crossroads who are grieving, who are from Korea as well. Now, as we begin our time together this morning, I want to ask you a question, and this is one of those questions that you don't raise your hand to, you don't nudge the person next to you, you don't try and make eye contact with the person across the congregation that this may apply to. Hopefully that person isn't in this room. But the question is this, have you ever known someone who is as sweet as can be to your face, but behind your back, you know they are just dragging your name through the mud. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are in the middle of a midterm election cycle. And I'm guessing you've noticed because the smear campaigns have made their way into our homes. One of the ugliest sides of American politics is the length to which candidates are willing to drag each other's names through the mud. Both major political parties in our nation are guilty of this. And yet when these same opposing candidates meet each other in the street or for a debate, most of the time they smile, they shake each other's hands, they at least show an appearance of respect and upright character because they know it's in their best interest to hold that appearance in the public eye. But then when they depart each other's company, they're right back to defaming each other and dragging each other's names through the mud. 
Church, I wonder if this is something like what God experiences when we come to worship him on a Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, we fight for power and control for just us. We drag God's name through the mud when we live as if the gospel is for just us, just people who look like me, who talk like me, who are successful like me, who vote like me, and who believe like me on every fine point and detail. Yet the example that we see in Jesus is that he is incredibly inclusive as far as the people that he is willing to extend the grace of God to across all distinctions, both the sinners and the self-righteous, who are actually also sinners. So in today's passage, what we're going to find is that in Amos 5, verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 14, God is going to call his people to the highest standard of living imaginable. He's going to call his people who have been living with a just us mentality to pursue true justice. And what we'll find is that this true justice is rooted and anchored in God's name and his character himself, Yahweh, the God of all eternity. And for us to see this, we need to think back to where we've been in the book of Amos up to this point. So you'll remember with me that in Amos chapters one and two, we saw that that Israel is about to receive what's coming to them. They are in direct the direct path of God's judgment because they've been living with injustice, oppression, and immorality of all kinds towards other people. And we saw that in order to escape God's judgment, we must return and be restored. Return and be restored. Then in Amos chapter three, we saw that if we instead choose to live spoiled, rotten lives as God's select and redeemed people, he's willing to bring earthly pain for our eternal gain. And in Amos 4, I warned us that because we don't know how much time we have in this life, we better return to our Savior before you meet your maker. Then last time in Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, we saw that the whole book of Amos has been building to this pinnacle passage because Amos has used these three structures called chiasms, which is just a fancy word for a parallel structure that builds from the outside in to a central point, kind of like a mountain. The point of climbing a mountain is to get to the top and see the view. The central point of a chiasm is at the center of the passage. And in Amos's book that he's composed, there's three of these structures. And the central one of these is in Amos 5, 1 through 17. And the central point of Amos 5, 1 through 17 is that the name of God is the central reality of all existence. Amos drops the name Yahweh at the center of his whole book. And so we reminded ourselves that we should lift his name and live. We should keep God's name and his character and the good news of the gospel central to everything we believe and do, every attitude we carry, every word we say. And so in today's passage, what we find is that the only way to turn a just us attitude of caring only for myself and for people like me into true justice, caring for the good of all, is to turn to God himself. 
And if we haven't seen where we've come in the book of Amos, we'll miss that. And a lot of people jump into this passage because verse 24 of chapter 5 is the most commonly quoted verse in all of Amos because it's on justice, and that's a hot topic today. But if we've missed that the central truth, the central reality of all human existence is God himself, then we might choose to define justice for ourselves. And a lot of people have gone about doing that. And so it's important as we start this morning to realize that when the Bible uses this word justice, when it points us to what justice looks like, it envisions a fair process and fair treatment for all people, regardless of status or distinction. It does not necessarily guarantee equal outcome or wealth or even position within a society as a result of justice. Instead, it points our ultimate hope to the final judgment when God returns and executes justice for all the wrongs that have been done in this, light, in this life. And so if we instead choose to turn away from doing justice in this life and let injustices live on in our life, we should expect that we are going to find ourselves on the business end of God's justice and his return will be a rude awakening. That's what we're going to see in verses 18 through 20 to start our passage this morning. The Lord's return will be a rude awakening if we have turned his justice into a just us life. Look at verses 18 through 20 with me. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? When God called me into ministry, it was a really painful experience. It all began when my youth pastor invited me to this theology conference on the Trinity. And it was going great. I was eating it all up. And this led to him asking me this question that changed everything. And I still remember to this day. He asked somewhat prophetically, could it be that God is leading you, Tanner, to train for ministry at Moody Bible Institute? And to be honest, I hadn't given that much thought at this point. The furthest thought that I had given it was to know that the next day from when he asked me was the deadline for application. There was no way I was going to be putting together an application overnight. Now, the reason I hadn't given this much thought is because at this point, I basically had a perfect GPA. I had great extracurricular activities to pad my college application, and I had scored perfect or near perfect scores on every section of my college entrance exam. This led to a full-ride scholarship to a top 10 engineering school and a near-full scholarship into an Ivy League. And so I just thought, you know, to go into ministry is really to waste the gifts that God's given me, right? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> I took that full ride and I lost it in a single semester. God let me experience this massive pain and massive loss because he had a lesson to teach me that I had placed my security in something outside him. And I hadn't learned my lesson apparently because just a matter of months later, I was in my first ministry internship. And in the final week of that ministry internship, I found out that I had failed. This was devastating because now not only had I failed in my academic life, I had failed in direct service to God in ministry. 
God was teaching me that true success, true security is not found in the promise of a lucrative career as an engineer, although there's nothing wrong with that unless we're finding our security in it, or in a false sense of security of a life in vocational ministry. True success, true security is found in him alone. Israel has been finding their security in their religious activity and in the power of wealth. They think that God is pleased with them because of their religious devotion and the prosperity that they're experiencing, but they have been ignoring the most important demands of God's law on their life, to love their neighbor as themselves, especially the marginalized and the most vulnerable in their community. So when God returns, they shouldn't expect unconditional blessing, but instead they are in for a world of hurt. Now, because God loves all people and values all life, he calls his people to reflect his nature and to love all people and all life as well, especially those who are most easily dismissed in society, the unborn and the parentless, the immigrant and the refugee, the aged and the disabled, the widow and the widower. God calls us to love all people regardless of distinction, regardless of ability, regardless of status. Now, one of the issues in this conversation is that the evangelical church has become splintered and divided over issues of gender, race, and politics. And oftentimes when we're in conversation, we're listening to hear if someone is going to differ from us on one point or another. And if they do, our natural instinct is to recoil. But church, if we are unable to reason with each other across differences, this is not going to lead to further justice in our churches, in our cities, in our nation, in our world. It's going to lead to further just us mentalities of tribalism and division. And this is exactly what's happened in the nation of Israel. The wealthy and religious elite, the few, have chosen to spend God's grace just on themselves And this had led to massive levels of injustice for the poor majority. You see, they've gotten God's law wrong on two points primarily, religion and power. They think that it's more important to make these big displays of religious rights, R-I-T-E-S, instead of doing what is right. And they think that it's more important to pursue personal and political power, might, instead of doing what is right. So they've put rights over right and might over right. And God has called them to live consistently. All throughout scripture, we see that God's law, his demand on us is a unit. You don't get to pick and choose which laws you like and which ones you don't. And even though as new covenant believers, we understand that the way we relate to the law is different now than a an ancient Jewish believer before Christ related to the law, we know that the whole law, every single command, every detail, and all of scripture for that matter, is still relevant and instructive to us today. This is why I love being at a church like Crossroads Bible Church, where we primarily work our way verse by verse through books of the Bible, even hard books of the Bible like Amos, because we know we don't just need a feel good word from man. 
We don't just need our favorite passages. We need the whole word of God if he's going to turn just us among us into true justice by his grace. And so we've found that when we turn God's justice into a just us lifestyle, we should expect that his return will be a rude awakening. Next, we see that in that day, religion will not rescue you. Let's read verses 21 through 24. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. God violently opposes religious hypocrisy. He is not happy for us to just have little puddles and pools of doing good to all people when it's convenient and when it's people we like. Instead, he says, let my grace flow like a raging river without distinction to all people. Let it be abundant as my grace has been abundant toward you. We live with religious hypocrisy when we say, God, you can rule in the way that I spend my money, but not in the way that I spend my time. We live in religious hypocrisy when we say, God, you can rule in the way that I lead my nuclear family, but not in the way that I might consider opening my home to someone outside my family for a meal or even to stay with us temporarily. We live in religious hypocrisy when we let God rule in our longtime friendships, but we don't leave any margin in our life for him to bring someone new into our life who might need a friend in Christ or a spiritual mentor. If we imagine a gospel that doesn't call us to seek human flourishing, the good of all that we encounter, of every person we encounter, then we've believed a different gospel than the prophets and Jesus. If, however, we forget that there is something far worse than death in this life, and there's something far greater than even human flourishing in this life, then we've also believed a different gospel than the prophets and Jesus. You see, Jesus never compromised on truth. He called a spade a spade. He told sinners, go and sin no more. But he was also happy to, or content to reveal the hidden sins of the religious leaders of his day. Jesus made exclusive claims about salvation and he raised the standard of right living to the highest measure possible. But he was also inclusive about who he invited around his table, both the sinners and the self-righteous. Church, if we were to say, anytime we saw tangible needs in our community, you know what, we'll just forget those, they'll take care of themselves. We're really just about robust biblical teaching. We would be fooling ourselves and we should expect to find ourselves on the business end of God's justice someday. If, however, we are so concerned about the tangible here and now needs of people around us that we're willing to bend the truth or even abandon it altogether for the impulse of the, the modern secular creed and for the new morality that it enforces that's sweeping through our society, then we remove the witness of the gospel. And we should expect God to remove his favor from us that we've experienced for so many decades as a church family. 
We each need to ask God to reveal to us personally and individually, which of these am I more likely to tend toward? Am I more likely to be so heavenly minded, so bent on sharing the truth of the gospel that I miss the present tangible needs of people around me? Or am I more likely to be so earthbound that I am so fixated on the present needs of people that I become no good to the kingdom of heaven because I haven't paired word with deed. For the nation of Israel, they've fallen into the trap trap of just caring about just us. They've not done good to all people around them. And so we need to have God come in and help us in any way that we've fallen into that same trap. Because when we turn God's justice into just us, religion will not rescue you. Now to summarize verses 25 through 27, which I won't read for us today, and there will be some other verses that I don't read for us today, but I just encourage you to read them for yourself sometime this week. Verses 25 through 27, what we see is that God is showing his people that his goal through the law and through covenant relationship with them was to increase their love for him and their gratitude toward him in a way that would create in them a heart like his that desires to bless not just everyone in their nation, but to be a blessing to all the nations. And instead, Israel has chosen to live like the nations, to try and manipulate God to spend all his grace on just them. And so God says, I'm going to give you a punishment that fits your crime. Because you've lived like the nations, you will now go live among the nations. God is going to kick them out of the promised land and send them into exile. They are going to be homeless and live among the nations as a result of their rebellion. You see that in verse 27, where it says that they are going to go into exile beyond Damascus. This is pointing to the Assyrian exile that will happen in 722 BC, just a few decades after this prophecy is given. And we've heard this hinted at from time to time through the book of Amos, but it's going to be emphasized again at the end of chapter six, which is why this whole passage belongs together despite the chapter break. And so we've seen that religion will not rescue you when you turn God's justice into just us. Next, we will find that power will not preserve you. And we're going to see this take place in four exchanges that happen in the nation of Israel and that happen in many people's lives when they trade God's justice, doing good for all people, for a pursuit of power. The first exchange we see is in verses one through three, and it is an exchange for an etern- of an eternal perspective for a political perspective. Let me read verse one for us. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Let's pause there. Now, this is probably how Israel has been referring to themselves, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations. They're saying they're the greatest of all time. There's just one problem with that. There's only one greatest of all time, and his name is Yahweh. And we saw that in the first half of this chapter. They have forgotten an eternal perspective and their place in God's eternal plan to bring salvation to all peoples. And instead, they've replaced it for a present political perspective as their ultimate hope. 
Now in verses two and three, which I won't read for us, but what we find in those verses is that in verse two, God says, look, apart from my grace, you are no different than any of the other nations. And in verse three, he calls them out for being willing to enact violence to keep their political party in power. And the nation of Israel doesn't think that the Lord's going to visit their violence with destruction. He says, you're fooling yourselves. And so what we see in this passage is that, aim, that Israel has exchanged God's justice for power for just us. Now, it would be very easy for somebody to come in today and think that what Amos or I am saying is that all political engagement is bad. Please do not misunderstand me. That is not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Amos is saying. In fact, we need Christians to engage in politics and in public discourse at every level. In fact, we believe this so strongly that there's actually voter registration available outside the worship center today for you. We need Christians to vote. We also need Christians to run for political offices at every level of government. And we need to abandon this nonsense of saying that the personal faith can ever be separated from a political responsibility in elected office. What you believe always determines how you live. That's true for elected officials. It's true for pastors. It's true for people in every industry, every walk of life. We actually want the gospel and God's vision for human flourishing to shape the laws and the policies of our country, which includes a view of a freedom of religion for people to believe differently than us. But church, let's not place our faith in a single elected political candidate or in the state of our nation as our ultimate savior. The gospel is still what transforms lives. And we have been entrusted with the gospel as the church to, to serve the greatest to the least and to speak the truth in love that Jesus came to save sinners. That as we speak truth in love, as we serve the greatest to the least, we can see God transform not just our church, not just our lives, but our cities and our nation and our world. The gospel is still what brings transformation. So we need to ask God to help restore in us an eternal perspective in any way that we've resorted to a political perspective as our ultimate hope. Now the second exchange that we find in chapter six occurs in verses four through seven. Again, please read those for yourself sometime this week. But in verses four through seven, what we'll see is that the nation of Israel has exchanged personal sacrifice for personal pleasure. All these sacrifices that God has prescribed, they've taken those and they've spent them on themselves. They're stuffing their faces when people go hungry. They're getting drunk on wine from the bulls from the temple. They're celebrating when they should be in mourning. And so God is going to return their rebellion by kicking them out of the land. Church, every day we are at risk of exchanging the self-giving nature of the gospel for a self-serving nature of the flesh. We need to ask God to help us in any way that we've started to live with the self-serving nature of the flesh to restore in us the self-giving nature of the gospel.
And an easy way to do this would be to just pray every day this week, God, help me to live out the self-giving nature of the gospel. Help me to see the needs of people around me, spiritual and material, and help me to step into those needs. Help me to turn back from any way that I've lived a self-serving life. And I believe God will help you in that. I believe he'll help us as a church family in that. We're at risk every day of making that exchange. Let's ask God to help us to see reversal through his transforming grace. Now in verses eight through 11, we see this third, we see this third exchange take place. And it is an exchange of a posture of pride, sorry, a posture of worship for a posture of pride. Again, I won't read these verses. We will read verses 12 through 14 together. But in, in verses 8 through 11, we see that God in no uncertain terms expresses his anger for the arrogance of Israel. Israel has lived as if they are kings in the castle. And God has said, look, there is one king and you aren't it. And God is going to come in and, and bring discipline. In fact, when we find ourselves exchanging humble worship for a posture of pride, and we are willing to seek to build ourselves up at all costs, even at the expense of God's people, what we'll find is that God's name no longer means life in our life. His name means certain death. We see that in verse 10 where the name of the Lord shouldn't even be named in his own nation because it's meant death for his people in this picture that Amos is painting. That is a dark picture when God's people have turned his justice into a just us life. So let's ask God to help us to restore a humble posture of worship in any way that we've resorted to a posture of pride. Now this comes full circle in verses 12 to 13 where we see that an exchange has taken place First, we saw an eternal perspective for a political perspective. Second, we saw a, a personal sacrifice exchanged for personal pleasure. Then we saw posture of worship for posture of pride. And fourth, what we see is true justice being exchanged for just us power plays. Look at verse 12. I'll read it for us. Do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. This is the root of the issue brought back to the surface once again. Amos points out that the land has become so polluted that the courts of justice in Israel have become a death sentence for the poor masses. And what's worse is that Israel has been bragging as if they are the ones who have brought themselves to this place of prominence on their own. Look at verse 13. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? Israel has turned God's justice into just us and they've done it through these power plays, seeing themselves as deserving credit for the good that they've experienced in their society. So they make the excuse then to spend it on themselves because they think they've earned God's grace just for themselves. Now, this 
ends in their exile, as we said. In verse 14, this is what we read. For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you. That's Assyria. O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. This is a dark picture that Amos paints for us. I would not want to live in a nation like what Israel, what Amos is describing, where the weakest are left to be slaughtered. They have no chance for fair process. And as I was poring over this passage and asking the Spirit to show me how this passage most applies to us as a church family, I have to admit, I was discouraged at first. I thought, Lord, where is the gospel in all this? Where is the hope for the people of Crossroads Bible Church in this passage? And church family, the Lord met me in that moment in a beautiful way. He reminded me in that moment all the ways that I have seen you turn just us into justice, doing good for all people, regardless of distinction, within our church family. Whenever you've seen a need within your community group, I've seen you step in when there was an urgent need, step up and love across all distinction. Whenever we've experienced a significant death or a terminal illness diagnosis, I've seen you walk alongside that person and you continue to walk alongside those people and care for them and love them and grieve with them. Whenever there's been a need that's been presented within the church family, I've seen people step up and say, you know what, I'm not going to wait for the church to kick in. As a brother or sister in Christ, family never leaves anyone behind. Church, when we see across scripture a call to love others across distinction, we see that that is primarily, but not exclusively, a command to love one another within the family of faith. And then for that love to be extended to anyone we encounter. Now, as a church family, do we have room to grow in this? Absolutely. Every church that's ever existed for all time has room to grow in blamelessness and purity until the day of Christ's return. But have I seen this alive in you? Absolutely, yes. Amos 5:18 through 6:14 is in ph photography terms like the negative of which I see the gospel alive in you on display in full color. It is a beautiful thing to see a church family step into each other's lives and to care for one another, imperfectly, sure, but to step in sacrificially and to turn a just us mentality of the flesh and of the world into a pursuit of good for all. I would never want to be the prophet Amos preaching this message to a world that wants him dead and that has left the weakest among them for dead. I am so grateful, Crossroads, to have been able to experience your love, to be the object of your love, and to witness you all love one another across distinction, regardless of age, regardless of status, regardless of ability. It will always be one of the greatest privileges of my life, no matter how long the Lord lets me serve here, to have been able to experience your love. 
from the bottom of my heart, Crossroads, thank you. And if the Lord leaves it up to me, you and me are just getting started. So I hope to see the Lord grow us in this pursuit of good for all, turning away from a just us life toward true justice as the days and weeks pass. Now, church, we need to remember, if in any way we have seen God turn just us into justice among us, it is because there was one who came to this world who was the first to fully turn a just us world toward justice, and his name is Jesus. You see, from the beginning of time, humanity has sought to define good and evil, right and wrong, truth and beauty for themselves. This is at the core of the first sin of Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree that God had forbidden. And from that moment, we've all inherited a sin nature. So we sin because we're sinners. And what sin often looks like is people seeing themselves as the highest beings in existence. Just look throughout history and you'll see from society to society, generation to generation, examples of people living as if they are the highest beings in existence. And what happens when we live that way is it turns into an us against them. You're either in or you're out. And Jesus steps in and messes this all up. He comes into this world fully God and fully human to save sinners like you and me. He was not content in eternity past to remain just us, to experience perfect love within the triune Godhead alone. So he stepped down into creation and brought perfect justice and perfect mercy by dying on the cross and rising from the dead to deliver us from sin and evil and death for anyone who places their faith in him. He came as the God of all creation, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so that by believing in him, we could have the right to be called the children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. This is earth shattering. This is the good news of the gospel, the Christian faith. And the greatest thing is that God wasn't done there. If Jesus intended to save just us, you and me, he would have taken us home by now. But instead, he sends us out with the same message that Jesus brought, that the Son of God has stepped into creation to save sinners like you and me. He sends us out to serve the greatest to the least, to step in where we see needs and brokenness in our world, to be a foster family or to be a respite home or to be an adoptive family or to come alongside someone who's in one of those roles, to, to be a spiritual mentor to someone who's maybe not grown up with a godly example in their home or to partner with one of our local ministry partners who are pressing in to the places of biggest need and most brokenness in our community. Church family, Jesus has sent us out to be the church. He has called us to live lives that are consistent with the gospel, that we would love all people, that we would not make distinctions and say the gospel, the grace of God is just for us. We are building disciples who bring Jesus to our world as the church sent out. 
And as we end our time together in God's word today, I want to leave us with two questions to ask ourselves to be able to turn just us into justice. The first is this, who's that person in your life who you are least likely to show God's grace toward, that God might be calling you to show grace to this week? And the second question is this, ask yourself, which of these four exchanges that we saw in chapter six have you slipped into or are you at risk of slipping into? And then ask God to give you the grace that you need to experience transformation in that area of your life. Let me pray for us, church. Lord God, we love you. We're so grateful that you've not left us here on our own. God, we desire to live lives that are consistent with the gospel. Help us to live like you, Jesus, the one who came and never compromised on the truth, but who also invited all to the table. God, there might be somebody here today who's never trusted in you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would give them the courage to step out in faith, to acknowledge that they're a sinner, to say, Lord, I trust in you. Turn my, my focus away from myself on living as if humans are the highest beings in creation, turning my attention on you. I give my life to you. God, would you help those that have turned away, maybe they are followers of Jesus, but God, they've turned away from an eternal perspective to pursue power in their day-to-day lives. God, would you help us to turn back to you? Would you give us the grace we need to experience true life transformation that only the gospel brings, that only turning to God brings? God, let us never put anything above you, but let us lay our lives down again today in full service, in full surrender to you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.